Good morning, everybody. Thanks for reading, Janelle. Over the last about 20 years, there's a phenomenon known as the new atheism. Uh, have you heard of that phrase, the new atheism? Uh, it, it's a term that's just used fairly frequently uh, because over about the last 20 years, and I think it probably happened in response to the, uh, the 9-11 disaster in New York City, uh, I think that in the wake of that, uh, people who had opinions about such things thought it was time to readdress the problem of religion. And so the new atheists is a, a convenient term for this new species of atheists, people who don't believe in God, but they're more... They're not, unlike older atheists, in that some of them seem to be very, very angry about the idea of God. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, a, an atheist is a person who is angry that God doesn't exist. Uh, which is an interesting phrase in itself. But one of the most famous of those was a, a chap called Christopher Hitchens, who's a brilliantly gifted writer, an incredibly intelligent man, and he made the case against God in a book that was entitled God is Not Great. Now, I think that was designed to interact with the, uh, the Islamic confession, uh, God is Great. Uh, but Christopher Hitchens' book was called God is Not Great, and the subtitle was Why Religion Poisons Everything. Now, the world we're living in now seems to be increasing in its speed at the rate of the hostility which is growing against Christianity in particular. And I think that there is a widespread belief that Christianity, at best, should be kept in the margins, it should be entertained as a private belief, and it should have no influence at all in what's called the public square. That's a view which is commonly held. You keep your religion to yourself. I remember some years ago, uh, Tony Abbott, who at that time was the Prime Minister, was on the ABC Q&A program and he was seated next to a, a, a militant atheist. Uh, Tony Abbott is a very public Catholic and a man of conservative Christian morals. And uh, she said to him at one stage, you keep your, your rosaries off my ovaries. Now, she'd obviously practised the saying, uh, but she was saying, but out of abortion, that's, religion's got nothing to do with it. And so we live in this world that sees uh, religion and particularly Christianity as increasingly offensive and when we read the book of Acts we'll discover things that will help us to engage with the world that we find ourselves in. And so I want to just backtrack a little bit through... Um, hang on... <laughs> I've got, I've got some maps here that'll be very helpful. Now I've got a black screen. This is excellent. Uh, this will be fun for those listening at home, won't it? <laughs> right, how's that? Like it so far? Paul's in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Has anybody been there? Has anybody been to Ephesus yet? Yeah, Ricky has. It's a very popular tourist destination these days because it's a fairly intact ancient city in what we now call Turkey. And so if you do a Mediterranean cruise, chances are they'll take you to Ephesus. It's a remarkable place. I've got friends who have been there. I've seen their slides to prove it. Uh, but Paul was in Ephesus for three years. This was the longest spot that he stayed at anywhere in his missionary travels. And it was because obviously there was fruitful work to do there. In 
verse 10 of chapter 19, we read that because of Paul's ministry, all of the residents of Asia heard the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia, we're not talking about China. We're talking about the Roman province of Asia, which is now what we call Turkey. In Acts chapter 19, verses 17 to 20, we read about how, as a result of Paul's ministry, there was a massive burning of magical devices amulets and other things that were used in the practice of of magic now the people in those days believed in the power of magic they believed in spirits they believed that if you got the uh, the charms and the potions and the spells right you could have some influence over the spirit world and so there were lots of people in Ephesus and throughout that part of the world who believed in the practice of magic And so we read there that a number of those who had practised magic arts brought their books together and burnt them in the sight of all. The value of them was 50,000 pieces of silver. That sounds like a lot of silver, doesn't it? But let's put it into modern terms. One piece of silver is the equivalent to to one day's wage. I did the sums yesterday. One day's wage times 50 or divide, whatever it is. It's 137 years worth of, of wages. Now, the average Australian wage is $92,000 per annum. And so that means the value of those magical charms and books and things that were burnt that day was somewhere over $12.5 million Australian dollars. That's a lot of money, wouldn't you say? Yes. So that's the extent measured just in monetary value of the effect and the impact of Paul's preaching. People could see that these magical devices were out of step with the demands of the gospel and so they wanted to turn their back on them completely. And so we read in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's a little sentence such as you'll see often over and over again throughout the book of Acts where Luke wants to tell us this happened and it caused the word to prevail mightily. There's these little markers all the way through the book that you need to keep an eye on. So there's Paul, he's in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, There was Rome, which was the greatest city, and so Ephesus ranked in the top four, along with Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch in Syria. It was a great ancient city. It was prosperous, it was famous, It attracted huge crowds of people because of the presence of the temple of Artemis there. It was a place of education. It was a place that you could go to 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 get healing. Uh, They had advanced medical ideas there. This is what remains of the Celsus Library. Impressive architecture uh, and a place of great learning. Uh, It was a place of great wealth and so not too long ago some of the houses that would have been occupied by the wealthiest section of society have been excavated. Uh, These things have been buried by the sands of time. But uh, it's clear that there were very many very wealthy people in Ephesus. And so that's the city that Paul comes to. But before we get to the next incident, we have to look at a tiny little section that Luke includes at, uh, at verse 21 to verse 23 to 22 that tells us about Paul's plans and this is though brief very important so look at verse 21 to 22 there after these events in other words after the book burning after a fairly serious episode of demonic intrusion after these events Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem 
saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, another of Luke's techniques in writing is that he prefigures things. He gives you a little hint about somebody who's going to become famous later in the book. He gives you a little hint about events that are soon going to be made larger in the book. And so this is where we first read about Paul's desire to go to Rome, and that's where the book ends up. But he doesn't want to go to Rome as a tourist. He's not interested in going there for the sake of just being in one of the world's great cities. He wants to go to Rome because his ambition is to see the gospel of Jesus preached as far and as wide as possible. And he knows if he can plant the seed of the gospel in Rome, that's going to be greatly advantageous for the spread of the word. But you'll notice also that he plans on going to Jerusalem. And the reason he wanted to go to Jerusalem, we can actually work that out from reading some of his letters. And like I said last time I was here, it's a really good thing to do to read the book of Acts and to see how it interacts with the letters that Paul wrote. And you'll find that there's lots of areas of overlap, and each help us to understand the other. But he wanted to go to Jerusalem because there had been a famine in Jerusalem, and he wanted to take up a collection for the Christians there, many of whom who would have lost their jobs because they were Christians and no longer Jews, in the same way that they once had been. And so there was real poverty in Jerusalem, and Paul wanted to demonstrate the generosity of the Gentile churches. And so part of his mission was to get the Gentile churches to collect for people that they'd never met and yet who were their parents in the faith because it was the Jerusalem Christians that that first believed and who sent missionaries like Paul out. And so Paul wanted to prove to the Jewish Christians that Gentiles were equally part of the family of God. And there's a great example implicit in those few little sentences there of the desire to see Christian mission go on, but the desire to partner with other believers in other places to make sure that the work of Christ uh, presses on. And so the second part I've called the the dangers of the way. Uh, And so we find ourselves at verse 23. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business, from this business, we have our wealth. Paul's preaching and the response to Paul's preaching was bad for business. Now, if Christopher Hitchens was there, he would have said, Paul's preaching has poisoned everything in Ephesus. The very nature of what Ephesus existed to be and do was now threatened because people were believing in Jesus. And it leads, as our story goes on, to a physical act of violence. Incredible hostility to the message of the gospel. And so this is a disturbance about the way. Now the way was what Jesus' earliest followers used to call themselves. In Acts chapter 11 we read that the people in Antioch called them Christians. But the Christians themselves didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. Now why the way? Well, uh, Chris read before from Psalm 119. And we read there, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I will run in the way of your commandments. The way of your statutes I'll keep to the end. In the path of your commandments I will delight. 
All the way through the Old Testament, life is pictured as being like a road, which is another way of saying way. And the best way to stay on the road, to stay on track, to live in the light of God's will and his favour, is to obey his commandments, which are good and which are life-giving. And so life is like a path and we need to stay on it. But then we get to the New Testament and we read before from John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus is the way where to? To God. And so the earliest believers called themselves followers of the way. And so Luke uses that term at several points throughout uh, the book of Acts. It's the movement that was created by the word of Jesus. But this way is now in deep conflict with the systems of the world. You've got the word versus the world. And so this man, Demetrius, calls a meeting. He says, these people are bad for business because he says, we're worshipping Artemis and he and the other silversmiths in town were making a lot of money from selling ornaments dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis uh, was worshipped right throughout um, Europe as we would know it now. Uh, She was one of the most widely followed goddesses in the ancient world. Uh, Sometimes she's pictured as a hunter. So in that statue there, you can see she's reaching into her quiver to get arrows out and she's got a deer at her, her feet. So she's pictured as a hunter who will help you get food if you pray the right way to her. But sometimes she's depicted as an earth mother, a fertility goddess, which is a bit strange because she was also reputed to be a virgin. So how a virgin could help people become fertile is best left to the imagination. But there's a little bit of interest in this, I think, because there was all these competing ideas about who Artemis even was in her person. She's a hunter, she's a virgin, she's a fertility goddess. Well, which one is she? Now, the people at that time weren't too troubled about it. They just lived with the mystery, I suppose. But this is the trouble when you get your religion from nature and you rely on stories that are told over and over and over again with no basis in fact. And so what we're seeing here is a clash between a revealed religion that's revealed in an actual person who did actual things and those things were written down and nature worship where we're not even sure about the nature of the God that we're following. And so there's an interesting uh, contrast there as well. But Artemis was worshipped in a temple that sat on the top of a peak in Ephesus, which was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? You have? You haven't? This Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. Uh, Greeks were fond of classifying things and putting lists out. And so Herodotus had done enough travel and he decided that there were seven things that were made by people that were truly wonderful. There's only one of them that's left anymore and that's the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Uh, there was things like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and the, uh, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus on which our Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne is based. 
So if ever you go down there, it's been based on one of the seven wonders. But the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it attracted people from all over the place. They wanted to see this extraordinary building. And it was an extraordinary building. It was 140 metres long. It was 75 metres wide. Each of those columns there, and there were 127 columns, they were each 20 metres tall. That's impressive. If Mafra had a building like that, people would travel to see it. It's an extraordinary achievement for such a long time ago. And so the Temple of Artemis reigned over the whole city of, of, of Ephesus and to cater for all those people that came to town to worship Artemis, people like Demetrius would make little replicas of the temple so that they could take it home and put it at home and they could worship Artemis at home with this artefact that they'd purchased in Corinth. But you can tell by what he says there that it's a lucrative business. He says there, men, you know that this, from this business we have our wealth. Can you see the problem? The more people who convert to Christ because of Paul's preaching, the fewer shrines of Artemis that will be sold by these people and their business model is going to be under threat. And so in verse 26, Demetrius continues, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So think back to those statues of Artemis and there was a massive great one inside the temple. So that's what the temple looks like, archaeologists believe. And there was this massive metres high statue of Artemis in there. And Paul's going around saying, statues of things that you've made with your hands aren't gods. Now stop and think about the logic of that for a moment. Christians believe that God made us, so who's greater? Well, the creator is greater than the created. So no matter what level of skill is brought to bear by an artist, no matter how good they make the object that they've made, they're in control of it. Because the creator is greater than the created. And so Paul in his preaching says gods that are made by hands aren't gods at all. He's undercutting the whole business model, not just of these, uh, these craftsmen, but of the city itself. Because the whole city profited from the cult of Artemis. And so Paul's doing his work right to the province of Asia. And so verse 27, Demetrius continues, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, there's more going on here again because the temple of Artemis doubled as a bank and the priests of the temple of Artemis were the bank tellers. And so lots of people had invested their wealth and it was housed in the, in the temple of Artemis. Can you see the problem? Christianity is bad for business. If you're worshipping a God that you can't see and you've been told that the gods that you can see aren't gods at all, if that undercuts the worship practices, it's not going to do very well for the bottom line. Well, there's a spirited defence um, made on behalf of Artemis and so we find there from verses 28 to 34 that there's a defence made of the other way and so verse 28 when they heard this they were enraged and were crying out 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theatre. Now that's the theatre. It's still there. It's still quite intact. Uh, A lot of it's disappeared, but the actual seating, it could seat 25,000 people. And did you go to it, Ricky? Well, verify me if I... A bloke I used to teach with went to it and he said that he stood at the top the very top of the seating area and his wife was at the bottom and he spoke in a normal voice. No, she spoke in a normal voice and he could hear. An acoustic marvel. 25,000 seater, but that's where they dragged Paul. And that's why Ephesus figures on Christian tour itineraries because you can go to a place where Paul made himself famous, so to speak. And so uh, they were enraged, they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now that's interesting that the Asiarchs were Paul's friends because they're not believers in Jesus. And so what that shows us again is that Paul was something of a diplomat. Paul never sought to stir up trouble. He'd made friends of the people that were the dominant figures in Asia. Asiarch literally means a ruler of Asia. So these were people who came from noble families. They were people of great wealth and they were people of great authority, not just in Ephesus but throughout Asia. And Paul's made friends with some of them. Paul wants to go out and stick up for Jesus in this riotous mob in the theatre but they say no don't Paul don't do that because probably he would have been torn limb from limb so some of the disciples but also the Asiarchs uh, put him off from that that task we get to verse 32 now some cried out one thing some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together have you ever been in a mob like that mobs have a life of their own Once a mob has assembled, other people come to see what the fuss is about and there is a percentage of people who just like being where there's trouble and they'll end up getting involved just because it's a good... There's people who like a fight Um, and that's a a human characteristic that's been around for a very long time. They didn't even know what they were there for and yet they joined in. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward... And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, two hours is about as long as a football match takes. Can you imagine sitting in the MCG for two hours, just yelling out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians? I wouldn't even do it for Melbourne. For two hours, this riotous assembly is just chanting. We're not really sure what the goal of the people putting Alexander here or what his role was. Luke talks about it, but it's hard to tell what was really going on. But the success of Paul's preaching has led to rage and an outcry. And there's real confusion and there's the threat of very, very nasty violence. Now, Paul... That, that's another one of the theatre. That's from the, from the top there. It's an extraordinary piece of work, still awe-inspiring even today. Several times in Paul's letters, he refers to what seems to be this incident. So in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 to 4, as he's f- finishing his letter with his greetings to all of his friends in Rome, 
He asks that they pass on his greetings to Prisca and Aquila. That's Priscilla and Aquila that we read about a few weeks ago in Corinth. And he calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. Probably in Ephesus. Because that's where they'd gone. We don't know it from the book of Acts, but that's what Paul says of Prisca and Aquila. They risked their necks for my life. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 32... He's speaking about the resurrection and why the resurrection changes everything and why if the resurrection didn't happen, we're more to be pitied than everybody else. But he asks this question, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, what am I putting my life at risk for if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? That's a good question, isn't it? Would you expose yourself to the kind of risks that Paul would have been exposed to in the theatre at Ephesus for a hoax? For something you knew not to be true? Would you? You'd be an idiot if you did. But Paul is so convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead as a matter of historical certainty that he was prepared to face that mob, thinking he could do some good until he was prevented. But then in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is the book in the New Testament that deals most, uh, at most length with the subject of suffering. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he has to try to tell the Corinthians why he hasn't been able to get back to them because he promised he would return. And the Corinthians were a bit jealous that he was spending time elsewhere. He wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus. And this is what he wrote. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, J.B. Phillips, in his translation of of the New Testament, he puts that little phrase this way. He says, we had stared death in the face. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, are you with me? This is history. This is our history. This is the great pioneer of the faith, the Apostle Paul, whose writings have enriched our lives and enabled us to understand Jesus at all. And that was the the extent to which Paul was committed to go for Jesus. And that sets us something of an example. It should. So in verses 35 to 41, as our reading comes to an end, we don't read any more of Paul. He's not the central character of this narrative. He's a bit part player. The real hero of the book of Acts is Jesus. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says... In this book, I'm going to tell you all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Now, it's by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not there in person in the flesh. But the real hero of the book of Acts is Jesus. And the impact is not Paul, but the Word. Because the Word is what produces the way. And so the way has had an impact and it's caused real conflict. But then things are sorted out and I think that you can only say this is by the hand of God. And so verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so he was a city official, he said, men of Ephesus, 
Who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesians, of the Ephesians, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, there's evidence that along with other things that they worshipped in Ephesus was what was probably a meteorite. And they had put the story around that this meteorite was an embodiment of Artemis. It came from heaven after all. But there again, that's really interesting. These people are worshipping a lump of rock that came from heaven. Who does Paul want to worship? Them? Who, who does Paul want them to worship? A human who came from heaven. Someone that you could have had lunch with. Someone who was flesh and blood and who paid with his blood for the sins of the world. What's a lump of rock going to do, no matter where it came from? And so the, the town official actually gives us an insight into the worship of the Artemis, of the Artemis cult there. He says in verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And so he says, if you want to have a court case, do it properly. But his real fear was that the Roman authorities would get wind of the fact that there was a riot going on and they would come in and quash the riot and also strip Ephesus of its privileges. It would go under martial law. He says, if you're going to behave in a disorderly way, then watch out because the Romans might fix us up. And he says, and this is again very interesting, neither Paul nor anybody else has done anything sacrilegious or blasphemous. Paul was not rude about Artemis. Now that's very interesting. Paul preached Jesus and the confrontation of Jesus and Artemis was obvious. But Paul didn't set out to antagonise anyone. He wanted to exalt Christ. And when you come to see how wonderful Jesus is, then you'll see everything in its true perspective. All of the other competing claims for our affections in life will seem rather dull. You know that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? You know that one? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And what will happen when you do? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Paul exalted Christ. Now here is a top tip for us as we engage with our world. Because we live in a world that thinks it hates God or has at least done away with any need for God. We live in a world where people are turning their backs on the things that made our culture. And they think that Christianity is the enemy of tolerance, of peace of getting along with each other, of freedom. Now, Paul, according to the testimony of this city official, had done nothing to antagonise the, the, uh, the faith of the, the, uh, the worship of Artemis. What he had done was exalt Jesus. I've got a friend who uh, was a missionary in a Muslim country and obviously it was very difficult to... To, to do what he did but he, he preached Jesus and he said I don't criticise Muhammad it's not my job I magnify Jesus he makes Jesus look wonderful and you don't have to do much to make Jesus look wonderful you just got to tell the truth about him imagine a man who came from heaven who bled and died so our sins could be forgiven to be the way to the father imagine that just, just, just try to make that sound good we don't have to bag out every other opposition idea. Exalt Jesus. Let the word do the work. 
Peter, First uh, Peter chapter 3 says that we've got to answer our critics with gentleness and respect. And so what we've got in this passage here is another illustration that there's only two ways to live. You can live the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus which was forecast in the Old Testament and of which Jesus is the fulfilment and who by his blood and his sacrifice has made a way for us to enter the courts of heaven and know God as our father. Or you can live the world's way, whatever way that might be. But you can't do both. And so the world's way has to give way to Jesus. Now I was talking to another friend the other day and um, she's Chinese. And she was telling me that when she became a Christian, she rang home. She became a Christian at university in Australia. And she rang home to her parents to tell them. Now, when I became a Christian, my parents were excited for me. And I'm sure there's others in the room that know what I'm talking about. But when she rang home, her mother was angry. For two reasons. The first was, she said, who will pray for us when we die? Because they believe in ancestor worship. And so if my friend no longer believes in the need to pray for your ancestors, her mother was worried, who's going to pray for us? But the second thing she said was, why did you have to fall for a Western religion? It was almost like an offence to her Asianness. So she told me that and I said, well, of course, Christianity isn't a Western religion, is it? And it's not. It's an Asian faith. Jesus was Asian. He came from West Asia, but he was not a European. And here's the thing that I want us all to think about because most of us sort of come from Europe, not all, but but most of us come from the European heritage in some way or another. Somewhere along the line, our culture was impacted by the gospel because my ancient forebears were all dancing around stone circles, putting ivy in their hair and worshipping mother goddesses too, weren't they? Because that's the ancient religion of Europe. And when Christian missionaries took the gospel to Europe, that ancient way had to give way and it did because Jesus was glorious and those ancient ways give no hope they're bondage and so Christianity is not a western faith it's an Asian religion that had a deep impact in Europe but let's not forget that so the Christian lifestyle does demand change it demands that we surrender to Jesus. The Christian way will probably lead us to conflict because the way of the world is not going to give up easily. And the fact is that we have vested interests in our world that don't want to see the light of the gospel shining too brightly. For instance, the illegal drug trade makes up 1% of all the world's trade. The illegal drug trade is worth perhaps as much as $650 billion per year. Now, if the whole world converted to Christ and decided we don't need drugs anymore, that's going to put a dent in the profit margins of the world's drug dealers. What about pornography? The international porn trade, no one really knows how much it's worth, but it's probably worth more than Hollywood makes. But if enough people convert to Christianity, they're going to stop using porn. And that's going to put a dent in the profit margins of the pornographers. I remember years ago when the Crown Casino was opened in Melbourne. Do you remember that? And our Premier of the time, Jeff Kennett, stood up and made a speech. And he said, looking at the building, he said, this is the new spirit of Victoria. 
Now, what does that make me? It makes me a disloyal Victorian because I want no part of it. You see, Christianity, lived truly, is going to put people in conflict with their culture and culture must give way to Jesus. But don't be alarmed, don't be frightened or dismayed. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to finish the work that he'd begun. And so to Timothy, he wrote one... Oh, we need to look at it. Temple of Artemis. There you go. That's all that remains. One of the wonders of the world, and it's just ruins now, not even many of them, and they would have had to be put back together. The gospel's gone on. Artemis disappeared. And the word did the work. No Christian went and knocked it over. Paul certainly didn't organise wheel and the wrecker to come round. He preached the word and the word did the work. Now we're involved in a spiritual conflict as well and so to Timothy in Ephesus, Paul wrote these words in Ephesus chapter six, Ephesians chapter 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So Christians of Mafra, you too are involved in a spiritual conflict and the answer to it is to remember that you are equipped through the gospel with the armour that will protect you and you have a glorious message to which culture will give way when it's, when it's presented honestly, gently, sincerely and with prayer because Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to learn the right lessons from this reading today. Help us to look at people like Paul and those that went with him and I ask that you would increase our courage. I ask that you would help us each to so love the Lord Jesus and be so convinced of the truth of all that he did and all, he, all who he is that we would gladly uh, take this message to others who need to hear it. So please help us to be people of prayer and grant that we would be people of power too so we would in our lives and through our words uh, present Jesus as the glorious Lord of all. And we ask, as we do that, that you would grant that some would believe, many would believe, we ask. And we ask that you would cause our church to be effective as bearers of uh, the truth of Jesus and as followers of the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.